Please take your Bibles and open them up to Daniel chapter 5. Whenever I ride along with my family, my wife, and my boys in the car, I always seem to find myself in the middle of an audiobook. They are Many of you will listen to music in the car, some of you will listen to the radio, sports radio, whatever. Uh, our family typically, my wife and my boys, they're listening to books in the car whenever they drive somewhere. And there's kind of this like, agreement, sort of, that they don't listen to a book unless all of the boys are present, unless the one who's absent has heard it before, unless it's a familiar story. But I will often come in, I'm sitting in the car, and I have no idea who the characters are. I don't know what's going on. And my wife will kind of catch me up. This is what's going on. This is who this person is. That, that this is, you know, make sense of everything that's happening. And then, you know, I can enjoy sort of what's, what's taking place to some degree of pleasure. You know, none of us really enjoy dropping mid-story, parachuting into the middle of a story. It's always a bit awkward. It, it helps us if we can kind of orient ourselves to the context. There's only one kind of story, I think, that you don't really need any context for. That is only one kind of story, one kind of movie that you really don't ever need the beginning to kind of know what's going on. And those are, this time of year, the Hallmark movies, right? You know what's going to happen. You, you, you can drop midpoint in the movie and you know who's going to get together. You know that the big city slicker is going to move to the suburb, move to the rural area, you know, start taking down trees and find that's their lifelong dream. Those are the kind of stories, you don't, it doesn't matter who they are, what's going on, you know the story even if you don't know the story. The names change, the country scenery changes, but really it's like the same writer just making a lot of movies off the same script. I'm sure some of you who are deep in the Christmas Hallmark movie time right now find that extremely offensive. But you know it's true. You know it's true. Your husbands probably feel that truth, right? But it's the same truth that you feel about every football game, maybe. It's the same thing over and over again. You're upset, you're tense. Maybe you're happy at the end. Maybe you're frustrated at the end. None of us like a story without context. We like to have context. And unfortunately, when we come to Daniel 5, we are dropped in. Daniel 1 to 4, we have had this kind of consistent theme of Nebuchadnezzar being king. And even though the span of chapters 1 to 4 really covered a lengthy period of time, 50-some years, we were at least able to have some kind of consistency. There was Daniel. He had his three friends. They're prominent in the first couple of chapters. But Daniel, is the first few chapters, Daniel is this kind of consistent person. Nebuchadnezzar is mentioned in all four chapters. And then we get to chapter 5. We are introduced to this guy named Belshazzar. Belshazzar the king. Who is this guy? What's going on? Where's Nebuchadnezzar? We are dropped in like, like we have parachuted in the middle of a story and none of the characters are familiar. Daniel shows up about halfway through. We're like, all right, we know who this person is, but no one else do we recognize. The situation, the context, none of it is recognizable to us. 
But Daniel is writing, his first readers would have known the context, the historical context. They would have known everything happening. They would have known the importance of this date and time. October 12th, 539 B.C. They would have known what was going on. And so it might be helpful for us to fill in the blanks between chapters 4 and chapters 5. There have been about 30 years since chapter 4 to chapter 5. Daniel is about 80 years old at the beginning of chapter 5. 23 years have passed since Nebuchadnezzar's reign. He reigned from 605 BC all the way to 562 BC when, and he is rightly regarded as the greatest of the Chaldean or Babylonian empire's kings. He is is rightly regarded as the greatest. But following his death, his son, Amul Marduk, known in the Bible, he is often called evil Marduk, His son takes over. His son, we read from 2 Kings 25, he is the one who released uh, the Israelite king, King Jehoiakim, from prison. He only reigns two years from 562 to 560. And because he's kind of considered a morally corrupt man, he was killed by his brother-in-law. You thought you might have had some tough situations with your in-laws. His was worse. His brother-in-law, General Nereglissar, he had served under Nebuchadnezzar. He comes, he kills Amul Marduk. And Nereglissar reigns from 560 to 556. He reigns only for four years, and he dies of natural causes. But then his son, Labashi Marduk, becomes king. He was an evil king. He reigns for only nine months. He was young when he started but because he was particularly depraved, which is saying something in the Babylonian culture, but because he was considered particularly depraved, particularly evil, he was killed by a group of conspirators. That is, he was literally beaten to death. And those conspirators chose one of amongst themselves, another king to take his place, King Nabonidus. And it is actually King Nabonidus who is reigning over Babylon at this time. He is the one who reigns from 556 to 539 B.C., October 29th, 539 B.C., when he will eventually give way. He will surrender to Cyrus and the Persian army. But here in chapter 5 of Daniel we are introduced to King Belshazzar. King Belshazzar. And it raises a question, who is this man? If the real king of Babylon or the Chaldean army, we know from historical sources, is Nabonidus, then who is this King Belshazzar? In fact, if you go back not too far in time, you will find many scholars who will say that Daniel's writing of Belshazzar here is proof positive that there are mistakes and errors in the Bible. We have no, up until uh, 
not too long ago, a century ago, there was no historical record of Belshazzar whatsoever. They thought that Belshazzar's inclusion in Daniel's book was an example of a grave mistake. He misnamed a king, or he invented him. It was a wholesale invention to communicate something. And for many years, it was not believed that Belshazzar actually existed. Until 1853 to 1854, when a man by the name John George Taylor, he was an archaeologist for the British Museum. He is in the land of Ur. He is digging in an excavation site in what was then known as Babylon. And as he is in this excavation, he finds a ziggurat. And they begin excavating the ziggurat and begin seeing how large it is. And in the top layer of this ziggurat, he uncovers on each of the four stones on the, the, the corners of the top layer of the ziggurat, there are these cylinders within these stones preserved, having been put there 2,300 plus years prior when the ziggurat was built. And those cylinders, which are still preserved to this day, Record for us, give us the very first account of King Belshazzar. Believed not to have existed up until that moment. We find that King Belshazzar was the son of King Nabonidus. And King Nabonidus, for either health reasons or most likely religious reasons, he did not want to live in the city of Babylon. He lived about 500 miles away in a town called Tima, and he set up his throne, his palace, his rule from there. And his son, Belshazzar, reigned in Babylon. And for all accounts and purposes, Belshazzar, by those in Babylon, was considered the king of Babylon. He was the one that they looked to. It was his rule, his, his power, his authority that mattered most. This is one of the indications we see in the text when Belshazzar promises to reward anyone who can interpret to him the, the mysterious handwriting on the wall, which we'll see in just a moment, he promises that he'll make him the third in the kingdom of Babylon, which is really unusual. You want to make someone honored, you would make them the second. But Belshazzar is the second. And so he doesn't have the right, the authority to raise someone to his level, nor would he want to. And he can give that third place, which is what he promises to do. But from so about 550, 555, 556, Belshazzar is reigning alongside, under his father, as co-regent. He is reigning in, he is reigning in Babylon while his father does most of his work far away in the city of Tima. And what's happening in this passage kind of the background to it, is not just these historical details. The, the nation of the Medes and the Persians had been gaining influence and power over these last 30 years. And now Cyrus, with his army, weeks, days prior to, the, to this moment of this chapter, 
just miles outside the city of Babylon, he had defeated the armies of Babylon. And King Nabonidus and his armies had, King Nabonidus had led the armies of Babylon against Cyrus and the Persian army. Nabonidus had been defeated, and rather than retreating back to Babylon, Nabonidus retreated to another fortified city, and from there made his way back to Tema, where he would later surrender. That defeat would have been well known. That is the immediate backdrop to chapter 5. Babylon has been defeated. Their armies have been defeated, and the Persian army at this moment has set up camp outside the city of Babylon. And that is the context for chapter 5. That is what is going on outside the city walls. And yet, what we read on this night is that Belshazzar is throwing a party. A huge party. A rowdy party. Before we jump into our text, would you join me in a word of prayer, asking for the Lord's mercy on us as we study his word together this morning. Father, help us by your grace to grasp your word to respond rightly to it, that we may rejoice in you, that we may be confident in you, that we may be spurred on to do what you call us to do, that we may grow in wisdom. Be pleased, O Lord, to do all this and more. In Christ's name, amen. We find in chapter 5, the very first verses tell us of this massive, huge party that Belshazzar throws. Read along with me in verses 1 to 4 of chapter 5. Belshazzar, the king, made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in the presence of the thousand. And while he tasted the wine, Belshazzar gave the command to bring the gold and silver vessels, which his father Nebuchadnezzar had taken from the temple, which had been in Jerusalem. And when you read, so throughout this passage, throughout chapter 5, there is reference to Nebuchadnezzar being Belshazzar's father. That was par for the course in the ancient world. Okay, What he is doing there, what the author is doing, is not saying that Belshazzar is... uh, the biological son of Nebuchadnezzar. What he is doing there is saying that he is in the line of, that is, just as Nebuchadnezzar was a great king, was ruling, so Belshazzar himself was a king and is ruling. That's what's happening, so do not confuse. Our, when we say son, we mean something different, typically. He means something different than what we do. So he is the son, his father, Nebuchadnezzar, had taken from the temple which had been in Jerusalem, that the king and his lords, his wives and his concubines might drink from them. Then they brought the gold vessels that had been taken from the temple of the house of God, which had been in Jerusalem, and the king and his lords, his wives and his concubines drank from them. They drank wine and praised the gods of gold and silver, bronze and iron, wood and stone. This is a huge party. He is, you have perhaps thrown a party. Maybe some of you have had Thanksgiving or Christmas meals in which there are not 10 or 15, 20. Some of your families are massive, I know. Some of you have to like 
go to another place to have all of your family members present because there is no home large enough. Here he is throwing a party for a thousand of his lords. And then on top of all of those lords that were present, those lords, their wives and their concubines would have also been present, okay? Here we are talking thousands of people present. This was not too unusual on important occasions in the ancient world. That is, we have records of, uh, of massive feasts being given in honor of various events, various gods, various uh, personages. They were massive feasts thrown. Uh, we are told of one feast that was thrown in the ancient world that lasted 180 days. It was thrown also for thousands of guests. Here is one night, lavish, huge party. It is an exclusive party. The thousand lords, those who were directly connected to them. This is, this is the who's who of Babylon. If they had the Babylonian version of Times Magazine, these would have been the people that made the top 1,000 most important people in Babylon at the time. These were the most important people in Babylon. All right? This was an exclusive party, a large party, and it is no stately affair. This is no black tie formal party. This is a debauched party. There are several clues to this in the text. We see Belshazzar the king, he, he makes a great feast for a thousand of his lords. And we are told Belshazzar also in the very next line, and he drank wine in the presence or in front of the thousand. That is way out of the ordinary. Kings did not eat and feast and drink in front of their guests. It wasn't to be done. They were set aside. They were given exclusive quarters. People might approach them. They might come to them, but they were out of sight. Belshazzar doesn't just eat in front of everyone. We're told he's drinking wine in front of everyone. He is, he is encouraging everyone with him, not just to drink, but to drink to excess. He is leading the way into intoxication here. That is what is happening. He is trying to push everyone deeper and deeper into drunkenness. That's his goal. As he is standing, sitting in front of everyone, drinking wine, he is setting the pattern for what he wants everyone else to do. We see this in the very first line of verse 2. We read, while he tasted the wine. It might, that word tasted probably includes the idea that here he, he's feeling the effects of the wine. He's been drinking and drinking and drinking and now he's kind of joyful. His judgment is impaired. It, what is in him? is now all spilling out. He is very much on his way to getting drunk. And then we are told it's not just him, but that the wives and the concubines are present. That is meant to give us a clue that what's happening at this party is more than just eating and drinking. It is a, a hint that what's happening here is drinking and a lot of immorality. This is a huge party. It is an exclusive party. It is quickly devolving into a debauched party. 
But more than anything else, it is an arrogant party. It is an arrogant party. Just think of the context of what's happening. Outside Babylon's walls, the army of Persia has set up. They are setting up camp. And inside, Belshazzar is throwing a huge party. What would give him this kind of confidence, arrogance, to throw this kind of a party at this moment? Well, it could be simply that there is, in the course of the year, this is one of the Babylonian holidays, and he's trying to honor it and celebrate it almost as a way to tell everyone else, signal to all of Babylon, hey, life is okay, things are going on as normal, we have nothing to worry about. It could be that. It might also be that he is himself trying to take advantage. King Nabonidus has been defeated. He's scurrying back to whatever fortress he can, and now is going back to Tima, maybe... Belshazzar is trying to think, hmm, it's time for a new king. And maybe that new king is me. It, it could be that, where he is planning on announcing his own kingship. It might also be the chance where he is trying to distract everyone in Babylon from the fact that just outside their walls, the Persian army is camping. Isn't that something similar that we do today? Life gets tough. There are questions we're not sure what to do with. And so we distract ourselves with whatever is at hand. And so alcohol and drugs, TV, video games, and scrolling on our phones, or going outside and working on whatever project we might have, endless ways that we try to distract ourselves from difficult problems. It could be something like that. But most likely... Belshazzar is throwing this party to show how confident he is in the face of the Persian army. And he's not acting like a guy who's surrounded by his enemies here. He is acting like as if he has already won. He's acting as if he's totally secured, unbothered by what anyone else is doing. Here is a guy who, by all appearances, wants to show everyone how absolutely confident he is. No one can break into my house. No one can touch me. We're untouchable. Let me show you, I'm throwing a party. You might ask, why? What would make him so confident? And part of it is that for over a thousand years, Babylon had remained unbroken into. That is, the walls of Babylon had never been breached. They had never been destroyed. What is more, Belshazzar or Babylon is well supplied. It was typical in the ancient world that when you couldn't stop or penetrate the walls of a city, you would simply wait it out. They're going to starve to death. They're going to uh, lack water. The problem is, Right through the heart of Babylon ran the mighty river Euphrates. There was no, no way to stop the water flow. And so 
Whatever supplies were going to come in, they came in. Water, fresh water was there daily. There was no danger of losing their water. More than that, from what we have gathered, historical sources, they tell us that Babylon itself had been well supplied for this event. They had stocked resources. They were good for years. The Persian army would not be able to survive nearly as long as Babylon would be able to hold out. So Belshazzar, he's confident. He's confident, we might say, even arrogantly so. But it's more than all of that, isn't it? From, our, from the verses that we read, the root of his confidence isn't merely in the walls of Babylon. It's not even in their resources. It's in what? The Babylonian gods. He does something that is incredibly out of the ordinary. He does something that would have been considered profane even in the presence of the lords. He calls on on his servants to bring out the, the dishes, the goblets, those cups that were used by other deities, I'm sorry, in the worship of other deities, including in the worship of God in Jerusalem, to take those, to bring them, and they're going to drink out of those. What he is in essence doing is he's saying, I'm not gripped, I am not held in the grip of fear of that God, I am holding him in my grip. He is in essence Declaring his own superiority. Your gods were never a danger to us. We have already conquered and defeated them. They, they are no threat to us. And just as those nations and their gods pose no threat, Persia and its gods, they pose no threat. Babylon's gods reign supreme. And so we're going to drink we're going to profane the use of these instruments of worship of all of, of the most high God. And we're going to use them for our own purposes. You can hear him almost just toasting. Let us drink to the gods of gold and silver, bronze and iron, wood and stone. Let us drink to our gods. Our gods protect us. Their gods are insignificant. Their gods, that God, the most high God, he is no God at all. He couldn't protect Jerusalem. And just as he couldn't protect Jerusalem from our gods, so the gods of the Persians won't be able to breach our walls. This is incredible arrogance. And this, is, this kind of arrogance is still symptomatic in our day. It is still found in our day. You know, people use the name of Jesus not out of reverence, but out of rage. Not in praise, but as a curse word. Those who follow after Christ are increasingly mocked, belittled. Our society doesn't toast to the gods of wood and iron, gold and silver, We toast to different gods. To the God of science. To the God of reason. To the God of money. The God of entertainment. The God of comfort. The God of sex. The God of power. The God of fame. The God of self. These are the gods we worship. We don't call them gods. But we make sacrifices to them nonetheless. 
how much is sacrificed for the sake of money. How many wives, how many children, how many husbands have been sacrificed as somebody pursues their own joys, their own satisfactions? How many children have been sacrificed in the altar of work, on the altar of comfort, on the altar of advancement? How many relationships have been sacrificed in the altar of money, on the altar for more? How many individuals sacrifice, sacrifice so much on the altar of self? What we feel like, what we think, what we want. Defining it and redefining it however we please. And they toast. These people, they toast to the gods, to their gods, and we toast to ours as if they are infallible. That is what we believe in our day. Our gods of reason, science are infallible. We take the very minds that the Creator has given us. And the methods of deduction and study that can only make sense in a world that has been ordered by a Creator. And we use these gifts to deny the fact that there is. That's arrogance. This past week, I was talking with a man in our community. When the Bible and Christianity came up in conversation, he talked about how he viewed all religions were were really all alike. That's how he liked to view Christianity. It, It is just like every other religion. You know, all religions have one message, one God, and it gave him confidence. We're all really saying the same thing, he said. We all really believed the same message. Do you not realize what an arrogant statement that is? What if a a man were to say, you know, all women are really like, they're all the same. What if a woman was to say, all men, they're all the same. What if we were to say that about a nationality? Would a Muslim, would a Hindu, would a Buddhist, would a Mormon describe themselves? No, what we have is in our culture, this idea, in our world, this idea that, that all these religions are the same. It, it is arrogantly saying that what these people believe is, is meaningless. The distinctions that they have are meaningless, really. Everything's the same. What you believe is the same. What that person believes, what that person believes is the same as what you believe. It's, it's all the same. Is there anything more arrogant than that? And yet this is essentially the message of society when it comes to religion, when it comes to God. It's all the same. Imagine from the perspective of God. He has created all things. And these creatures that you have made, they have rebelled against you. You have made them in your image. You have shown love to them. You have created a good world for them to exist in. And yet, having rebelled against you, they continue to sin against you. Rebel, sin, and yet you in mercy 
Send your son into the world to become one of them, to share in their, humility, in their humanity so that he may represent them and suffer in their place. And he does. He does suffer. He suffers in the place of sinners so that he might bring sinners to God. So that all who turn and trust in him may be forgiven, reconciled, and know the joy of God's love. And yet, after all that, we say, you know, all religions are really the same. Is that not arrogance? Is that not pride? And is God not just to condemn this? Like Belshazzar, the world believes the world lives in the promise that we are invincible. That's how he's acting. He's acting as if nothing can touch him. That we can do as we please, live as we please. God is not here. He can't touch us. I have my years ahead of me. I have my health. I have my, my financial security. Whatever it is, I'm okay. And Paul warns us in Galatians 6, 7, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. Brothers and sisters, friends, there is coming a day when God will judge. His judgment will be good. It will be just. God will not be mocked. And friends, I want you to notice this is if you go to the end of Daniel chapter 5, you will read in verse 30, that very night, Belshazzar, the king, king of the Chaldeans, was slain. Part of the reason we know this is October 12th, 539 BC, is because historical sources give us that day. They tell us that on this night, Belshazzar throws a massive feast. Somehow, the Persian army, we'll describe next week, Persian army finds a way in and does what no one else had been able to do. Belshazzar here is extreme in his arrogance. I want you to notice in the moment of his arrogance, God gives a warning. In the same hour, the fingers of a man's hand appeared and wrote opposite the lampstand. The importance of the lampstand there is that now the hand and the writing on the wall is, is able to be seen by everyone. The hand writing uh, opposite the lampstand on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace and the king saw the part of the hand that wrote. Then the king's countenance is changed. His thoughts troubled him so that the joints of his hips were loosened and his knees knocked together against each other. All of a sudden, this king, who was so arrogantly confident in himself, all of a sudden, Daniel, to describe how the king's attitude has changed, he piles on these sayings, one on top of each other. His, his color changed, and his, his, his face goes flush white. His knees knocked together. He's shaking. He can't stand any longer. This is a guy who is weak in the knees. He is terrified. 
He cries aloud to bring in the astrologers, the Chaldeans, and the soothsayers. The king spoke, saying to the wise men of Babylon, Whoever reads this writing and tells me its interpretation shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around his neck, and he shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. Now all the king's wise men came, but they could not read the writing or make known to the king its interpretation. Then King Belshazzar was greatly troubled. His countenance has changed and his lords were astonished. They're perplexed. They themselves are terrified. And he goes on. Then the queen, that is the queen mother, because of the words of the king and his lords, came to the banquet hall. The queen spoke, saying, O king, live forever. Do not let your thoughts trouble you, nor let your countenance change. There is a man in your kingdom in whom is the spirit of the holy God. And in the days of your father, light and understanding and wisdom, like the wisdom of the gods, were found in him. And King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father the king, made him chief of the magicians, astrologers, Chaldeans, and soothsayers. Inasmuch as an excellent spirit, knowledge, understanding, interpreting dreams, solving riddles, and explaining enigmas, enigmas were found in this Daniel, whom the king named Belteshazzar. Now let Daniel be called, and he will give the interpretation. Then Daniel, verse 13, was brought in before the king. And the king spoke and said to Daniel, Are you that Daniel? Now, King Belshazzar is going to describe Daniel in the same words that the queen mother has described him in. But he makes one change, and it's here in verse 13. Are you that Daniel who was one of the captives from Judah, whom my father the king brought from Judah? Here in this moment, we are given... Just picture the scene. You have King Belshazzar. He is sobering up quickly. He is terrified, shaking, unable to stand, stuttering in his fear. And in shuffles this bent, wizened man, who for some reason is not included in the who's who. He has fallen out of favor since Nebuchadnezzar no longer included in the 1,000 most important lords and ladies. And yet he is brought in. He is sought. Why? Our text tells us. Because he is wise. And it points us to something, brothers and sisters, that we need to remember. Belshazzar many others they had forgotten. They'd forgotten Daniel. He had become insignificant. He had become meaningless. More than this, he was still looked down upon. The very first thing out of King Belshazzar's mouth is, aren't you that guy who my father brought here when he conquered your country? Aren't you one of those exiles? Don't you remember your place? And here we have this picture, this old, wizened man who was in exile, brought, foreigner, brought to this land. He is the one, he is the one who is needed. His voice is the one that needs to be heard. He is the one who is relied upon. 
His wisdom, his faithfulness to the Lord has brought him to this moment so that even though the arrogance of the king had excluded him and caused him to view Daniel and his God as meaningless and insignificant, Daniel is needed. Brothers and sisters, no matter how powerful, no matter how invincible the world becomes, no matter how insignificant, how frail, and how powerless our God is perceived to be. If we will live faithfully, if we will joyfully pursue the way of Christ, if we will live according to his word, according to the wisdom of God, we will find that the very ones who lead the way in mocking our Lord will be the ones who ask questions about him. We have here is Psalm 1 illustrated. The wicked, scorning, mocking, sinning, listening to the counsel of the world. Then you have the wise man. Insignificant marginalized, and yet he is the one everyone is looking at. Brothers and sisters, pursue wisdom. And to pursue wisdom is to pursue fearing God. That is the beginning of wisdom, Proverbs tells us. Fear the Lord. That is, be more afraid of him. Be more in awe of him. Be, revere him far more than anything else. That is the pathway of wisdom. That is the pathway of joy. No matter what the world says, no matter what the world does, no matter what, what steps they call us to follow in, follow in the way of wisdom. And in doing so, you will follow in the footsteps of Daniel. More importantly, you will follow in the footsteps of Christ. Who is the true wise man? Who one day all nations, all kings, all Supreme Court justices, all members of Congress, all princes, all rulers, all dictators, no matter who they are, no matter what their title is, all people will stand before him to give an account. Live in light of that day. Live in light of that day. Husbands, live in light of that day. As you interact with your wives and kids, as you go to work, wives, live in light of that Savior as you relate to your husband in ways that honor Christ. Children, kids, teens, we perceive that you have many years ahead of us, ahead of you. We long for your lives to be long. Belshazzar thought he had many years left. But this night, his life was going to be snuffed out. Give your lives to the Lord Trust in him now.
Look to him while breath is still in your lungs. Look to Christ. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we too often fight the pride in our hearts. It is evident. We too often feel the pull of the world. We feel ashamed before the world. Oh God, I pray that you will teach us wisdom. Teach us to be more in awe of you than we are of the glitz and glamour that this world offers. To be more in awe of you than we are of what people may think of us. To hope in you, O oh God. We may follow in the footsteps of Daniel, more importantly, that we may follow after our Savior. Oh God, let us trust in you. Teach us the way of humility. Teach us the way of faithfulness. We pray all this in the name of our good Savior, Christ Jesus. Amen.